Bob, you said you had a question from earlier. In one of the paragraphs, Master says... What number are you on? Uh, I'm on page number 172, the conversation 149. Okay. So he says, don't waste the perception of God's presence acquired in meditation by useless chatting. Uh, idle words are like bullets. They riddle the milk pail of peace. In devoting time unnecessarily to conversation and exuberant laughter, you will find you have nothing left inside. Mm-hmm. So, this was something which I was not able to quite comprehend as uh, what he's referring to that you would have nothing left inside and uh, what kind of laughter and what kind of conversation he's uh, asking his disciples or the monks do not indulge in. Well, um, okay. Um, Master was very strict. And the life that he imposed upon the monastery was far stricter than the life that uh, we live. And uh, Swamiji said that Master didn't really let them talk when he was around. He, he said uh, Master would have uh, guests for dinner and guests for lunch and would just be the, the life of the party and the most gracious host and he would you know, talk and tell stories and others would say, oh, you, you know, you are with him all the time, must really, you know, just be constantly entertained. And they said, actually, he, 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 he would withdraw, he would ask them often to be very silent when they were around him because he wanted to influence them on a deeper level. He, you know, for guests, he had to draw them in and he, they, they wouldn't have been drawn in by his silence. They had to be drawn in by his human personality. And uh, whenever you take a period of quiet and seclusion, uh, when we were in the early years of Ananda in the 70s when we lived a very isolated life in a very rural place, people would go into silence. Even though you were still working and interacting, you just put on a little sign on, please excuse me, I'm in silence. And you'd carry on your duties, but you wouldn't speak. And that was always the most interesting, because then you realized how much of what you said didn't need to be said, and how much of it was just a factor of just a restless mind that we just wanted to stay restless, and how little the world needed your contribution, and how often situations would resolve themselves perfectly, whereas if you had been talking, you would have stepped into it, but when you didn't talk, you couldn't, and it and you just it just gave you a very interesting perspective on where um, speech comes from. So that's what he was talking about, is just this kind of restless necessity to always be engaged, where the mind is always asking a question and asking another question. And I know Swami remarked about a certain woman in the community. He said, she asked me a question, and even as I'm answering it, she's busy formulating her next question. You know, she even though it just the questions were the issue, she couldn't even calm down enough to listen to him answer, and that's what he's talking about. And when we're talking all the time, and especially in ordinary society, no one ever thinks about it. But if you're really trying to transform your consciousness into something else, that which is perfectly ordinary for ordinary people becomes quite a detriment to you. 
always interacting, always moving, always interested in something else. Just exactly what he said, you end up with nothing inside because you've dissipated it. That's entirely different than thoughtful interaction, uplifting conversation, amusing friendship, you know, fun together. There's a very different quality between conscious interaction and just restless interaction. He's really talking about restless interaction. Does that make sense? Yeah. The most, I mean, of course, going into silence for long periods of time, which I've done in my life, especially in these last couple of years when I would go on these writing seclusions, it was a little peculiar because my mind was completely full of words because I was writing, but other seclusions. And more, more when I would keep silence in the midst of working, which I didn't do that often, but that was the most instructive. Because then you would be in the circumstances where you would normally interact and you get a really interesting perspective on where your interactions were coming from. So it's, it's worth trying sometimes. It, you can't really, in environments where people don't understand, but you can still just sort of see how much do I really have to talk? And how capable am I of just not talking? Even if you can't formally put a sign on and go into silence. Just, yeah. Okay. Anything else? Comments or questions? All right. So we are on number 318. And here we go. Humorously, Master once remarked, how clever those great ones were to be born into this world while it was still at peace. Here, I had to come at a time when there were three world wars. One, and Swami comments, one cannot expect a master always to speak in abstruse koans. It is important indeed to know that our master could also be lightly humorous. He meant the above words jocularly. They weren't really self-pitying or complaining. Yet he was also touching on issues which to him were important. For he recognized the period into which he'd been born as a time of great unrest in the world. He wanted us to make an extra effort to live at our center within and to try hard not to let ourselves be influenced by the emotions and excitements that swirl around us in these times. To him, indeed, the so-called Cold War, the period of time following World War II, was a world war also. He was concerned also about the great tension that had been generated in the world by the determination of the communist bloc to dominate people's understanding. He perceived this attempt as satanic. He spoke very seriously of trials that he saw in store for mankind. Another holocaust would come, he said, far greater than anything the world had seen so far in this age. No corner of the earth will be safe, he once remarked. In addition, he spoke of a coming depression, which he said would be far greater than that which followed the 1929 stock market crash. I was present in the SRF church in Hollywood one Sunday morning when he spoke, as he did often, of great economic hardships ahead. He urged people to do all they could to simplify their style of living and even, if feasible, 
to move out to the country. At one point, he interrupted what he was saying to declare with so much force that it seemed almost to shout, you don't know what a terrible cataclysm is coming. Did he utter these words to underscore the importance of what he'd been saying? Or was he declaring an altogether new threat? The word cataclysm usually implies a natural disaster beyond human control, something geologic or even planetary. Clearly, in any case, he was not holding out the usual olive branch people extend after making dire predictions. He wasn't saying, if people will learn to live together in harmony, then maybe everything will turn out well after all. He was saying, rather, the time has passed for positive expectations regarding the near future. Matters are already out of control. Nothing can be done about them now, though we can always mitigate what comes if we practice spiritual principles. You must provide for your own safety and plan to assist anyone you can. In this context, I've reflected sometimes that his teachings were, in a sense, intended more as a guideline for future times after the world has recovered from the disasters he saw in its more immediate future. Well, that is rather a long and spine-stiffening comment. It's not necessarily like cheery good news to start the evening. Yeah. Swamiji, starting from... Okay. The Sunday at the SRF Church, when he heard Master say, you don't know what a terrible cataclysm was coming, was like 1951, perhaps. 5051. Goswami was only with Master from 48, and Master died in 52. So now we're talking 70 years ago. Swamiji said, however, and he often said it, the way Master exclaimed, it wasn't only that it was fierce, and he said that wasn't the only time, I mean, that was a very notable time, but he heard Master continuously refer. And that particular day, he said, Master, it just seemed like it was, he was announcing it on Sunday and it was going to happen on Monday. There was no sense of sometime in the course of your lifetime or maybe your children's lifetimes. There was a, a tremendous immediacy to Master's comments about depression, war, and cataclysm. And from a very early stage, Swamiji starting Ananda Village in 1968, 69, was a very direct response to the urgency that Master expressed for people to buy land in the country, to simplify their lives, to work together, to grow their own food, to develop safe havens, to develop this as a a new alternative way of living. And he was always motivated by the expectation that Master's prophecies would fulfill themselves this year. And from the time I first moved to Ananda Village in 71, every year was a possible year. And it, it wasn't um, that Swami declared it and, you know, put his, what you would say, it wasn't a test of his spirituality that he was going to prophesize correctly. He, he didn't, uh, he didn't, try to reinforce it with some kind of 
special intuition. He would just more look at circumstances and try to evaluate it. And very early in the 70s, he put all of Master's predictions into a small book that he called The Road Ahead. And Master's actual words filled just a few pages. I mean, it wasn't like he he didn't give a detailed blueprint. He just said in general terms um, what was going to happen. And then the rest of what is still a very small book, Swami just tries to fill in with common sense, looking at what the political circumstances, the economic circumstances, the sound of the music, the social conditions, what people are working for. People at Ananda grew a little cavalier because every year he thought it was going to be this year. And when it wasn't, really, even for a whole lifetime, um, we didn't know what to think about it. But it was always in his mind. And then people would, sometimes people would uh, essentially quote the teachings back to Swami and say, well, if you think about it and talk about it, you'll make it happen. And you shouldn't think and talk about it. And, And people would get annoyed with him for going to the subject so often. My way of uh, thinking about that was, you know, Swami had a, Swami felt, it felt he had a responsibility. You know, Master had really declared these things as true. And how could Swami just say, well, I just won't mention it because it's unpleasant news and people don't want to hear it. I mean, how would that be responsible? So he, he felt that he owed it to people to alert them and to motivate people to establish themselves in a spiritual way so that they would have um, inner resources. At the same time, you know, it, whenever we would suggest to him that maybe we should all just retire to the country and hunker down, he never favored that. I mean, we all have lived in urban areas and Ananda has continued to expand into urban areas and expand through India and live in all these major cities. And he's never suggested to us that we, as some spiritual teachers have done, you know, there, were, there have been different spiritual groups that were all part of our generation in the 70s and 80s that, you know, just pick up and picked up and went to Montana or, you know, to just some obscure place and and built themselves some small fortress where they were going to uh, last through the coming catastrophes. So it's a, it's always been a bit of a, um, almost a contradiction as to what exactly the right response is. I know at one point when we were undergoing some major commitment, it might have even been buying this temple or it was something else. We asked Swami, you know, if the world is going to just fall apart tomorrow and we're going to only be halfway through this effort, maybe we shouldn't even start. He said, oh no. He said, you can't live in fear of a future which might not come. He said, you have to just go forward as if, you know, you're going to be able to complete what you start. Because you can see there's a balance point there, whereas others went, left California, would go to the desert, really a number of groups that you don't hear about anymore. But that's what they did. But at the same time, he, he would constantly mention it, and I think it, um, it has to do with building inner strength. 
And also, he, I mean, here, I, when he, he put it, it's right here, he says, He wanted us to make an extra effort to live at our center within and to try hard not to let ourselves be influenced by the emotions and excitement that swirl around us in these times. I think that's the relevant paragraph here. Because even much more now than was true in the 50s, which is even the last century now, you know, these are extremely emotional and excitable times. And it's exceedingly easy for us, even as devotees, to imagine that there is some useful purpose served in getting swept up into these tides. And so I think he wants us really to understand that way Swami puts it, you know, this is a time when we have to work harder to stay strong in our own center because it's just not a supportive world. This is sort of, in my own mind, the way I've been dealing with a lot of the, just the changing conditions in our society, the polarization and the vulgarity and the corruption and so on that just permeates there, there, there are no good guys in, in public life right now. There may be lesser evils, but not by much. It's just a, it's a time when the Koravas are running the show. It's just, it's materialism and selfishness and greed in just pretty much every direction. It, especially in this country. You know, we've always sort of had a, a, a kind of integrity, or I would say greater integrity in our public life, or it just wasn't as exposed as, as often. I don't mean to single out India, but there was. I had a funny conversation with friends of ours who came to San Francisco and we were visiting together. And I don't, I didn't, fo- I don't follow Indian politics. This was a number of years ago, like twenty years ago. And there had been some huge scandal in public life because the public officials had been just stashing money in Switzerland by the millions or billions. And my friend jokingly said, of course we knew they were stealing, but we didn't know they were stealing so much. (laughs) And, you know, the outrage was just the fact that they were stealing on such a scale. And it it was just amusing. They had, you know, there was a certain expectation, but they had crossed even that line. Well, in America, we've had systems in place, and we've had at least... I believe corruption has always been present, but I do believe it's increased. And there was at least a more of a facade of integrity that um, it just isn't there now. It, it just doesn't exist. So I've been thinking to myself, well, we've had, we've had the luxury of, being, of having a certain integrity in, in public life, and we're, we're gradually losing that luxury. Certain minority groups in this country have always um, been subject to um, unfairness on a far deeper level than others of us have ever been subject to. Uh, Many years ago, many of you may remember that there was a murder trial with O.J. Simpson, who was a black athlete who was accused of murder. And in the end, he was not convicted. And one of the reasons he was not convicted was because there was uh, the question raised as whether the evidence, whether or not the evidence had been corrupted, and corrupted by 
police mishandling deliberately prejudiced against him because he was a black man. As it happened, three, uh, Ananda is not, the, the black race is not well, the, the African-American race is not well represented within Ananda. It's a minority group, a, a small minority group, but as it happened, three of the African-American members of Ananda were staying with me at that time. And when that verdict came down, and we went out to dinner, the three of them and Keshava and I, as I recall, and the whole restaurant, everybody in the restaurant was talking about the verdict. And it was amazing to me that the three African Americans, it was just like, of course, of course the evidence would likely have been corrupted. And the two white people at the table, it had never seriously crossed our mind. But for them, that was just the way things were. And one of the, Ram was one of the men, and he was a, he's a big black athlete himself. And, you know, he grew up in Los Angeles. And, you know, he just talked about whenever a police car comes down, you try to get off the street. You, you know, you just, you never think of the police as your friends. You always see them as a potential threat, especially as a big black man. You just try to get in a doorway. You try to get into a building, just the very side of the police. And it was like, whoa, that is such a different perspective. Now, we haven't quite come to that point in our country where everybody is at risk. But we're moving into a time where you can't be quite so confident. At least it's how I, I feel about it. You can't be quite so confident in our public institutions. But I said to myself, you know, why do, why do I think that it's always going to be congenial to me? Like, where did I get this idea, quite apart from the politics of of the American country. It's just like, I just have this basic belief that the world owes it to me to stay organized in a way that pleases me. And I think of friends who've grown up in Eastern European countries, and these two uh, women, both of whom have passed away now, Maria and her sister Bella, and their last name was Parapovskaya, because they were Russians. They both married and changed their names, but um, and they came out of Russia. They had somewhere way in their background, they had Jewish ancestry, and there was a certain point when this was the when Russia was really closed, totally closed, and but somehow Jews were being ransomed out of the country or allowed to to leave. So that heritage got them out, even though they had no connection to it. So they arrived in America. But part of the reason they left, they were both very attractive young women, and they were on a metro late at night, I think in the city of Moscow, and some drunken KGB agent accosted them, some man who had very nefarious intentions. And somehow or another they managed to extricate themselves from him. But they both knew that if that man had wanted to, he could have done whatever he wanted to them. And they would have essentially had no recourse. And that was when one of the sisters said to the other, we are leaving this country. And by the grace of God, they got out and almost immediately, just as it were, found autobiography of a yogi and came right to Ananda. So it was, it was divinely inspired. But I often think of that situation just like there was, there was no rule of law in their country. If you had power, you could exercise it, and that was that. But... Deep in my heart, you see, I think it ought to be different. 
But where does that thought come from? Much of the world grows up in very difficult circumstances, wars, and when the 9-11 event happened, um, uh, I was active then in the Palo Alto Ministers Association, and they scheduled this big um, service down in the square of the city hall, of the Palo Alto City Hall. And they invited uh, some students from Middle Eastern countries to come also and speak. And, you know, there was a great, because there was such a great anti-Muslim wave of energy and they were trying to mitigate that because of this community is what it's like. But there was a few college students, and I remember one of the college students stood up and said, before I was 10, my house was bombed four times. And I thought, hmm, you know, I was 50 and I'd never been bombed ever. And he just grew up in a situation in which bombs were falling around rather regularly. I'm not sure he said house, perhaps town. But still, that was his childhood. Now, I'm not trying to say this to say, um, aren't we lucky or anything like that. I'm saying that if you're really going to depend on God, sooner or later we have to realize that he, he doesn't owe us anything. And a tremendous amount of energy we spend is to be outraged that circumstances aren't what we expect them to be. And if any of these predictions come true, and I've been waiting since I was quite young for them all to come true, and now, who knows, I may squeak out before any of it really comes down. Swamiji expected to still be here, and instead he left the planet before, before conditions began to resemble what Master's describing. No corner of the earth will be safe is quite a statement. There will be weeping in every home is something else he said. But nonetheless, one doesn't want to be comfortable merely because one has never been tested. You want to be comfortable because you're strong in yourself. And so I I think even just right now, just to keep a certain equanimity and a certain, you know, observation, Swamiji paid attention to world events. He said, I'm the head of a large organization. Many people depend on me. It would be irresponsible of me, he said, not to, not to know what was going on in the world. So it wasn't like he, he wasn't like Sri Yukteswar who said to Yogananda, well, that's your world and this is mine. He didn't, Swami didn't just, you know, describe his meditation seat as his whole reality. He was very well informed. He traveled the world. He spoke many languages. He, he, was, he participated. But that's different than allowing your, yourself to become agitated and drawn into the emotions and the excitement that's going on around you. And the other part of it is, is it necessarily good karma to just be able to drift at whatever level you're living at and not actually be pressed to have to go deeper and to get stronger? It's like, you know, that, that many, many times in these classes you hear me say, you know, for things to be easy and pleasurable is not the same as them being good. What we're, it, it's, so, it's so hard to keep clear in your mind, and this is one of the great advantages of being older, it's easier to remember that it's just a temporary place. 
And certainly when I was in my 30s, even though I knew it theoretically, I didn't know it as strongly as I know it in my 70s. Because you can just see how much of your life is behind you. And all those things that just seem so incredibly important when they were happening are just now, who knows where they are. And you're just standing in your own consciousness and that's all we're ever standing in. God knows, I certainly don't wish for anything resembling catastrophe or chaos to descend upon us. But I think this is really one of those situations where we really have to practice when it's easier. All we're dealing with now is is political noise and terrible music and ridiculous lies and uh, manipulation from who knows where and, you know, just really horrible things from the point of view of true integrity. But that's all we're dealing with. You know, what does it have to do with, with me, really? It's just there it is, it's happening. Can I just navigate? Can I accept that the world may just roll downhill in the way it's going to roll downhill and face into fear? I, uh, the question was asked of Swamiji, how can you tell when you've overcome a karma? His words were really simple, when you no longer fear it. And that's a, that's a very interesting template to apply to one's self. You know, what am, I, what am I afraid of? Oh, and you know, my personal list is very long. It's not as long as it used to be, but it's still long. Swami Kriyananda used to just, I don't know, the regale is not quite the right word, but he would challenge himself physically. Not, he was not an athlete or anything like that. Well, he had been, but by the time we knew him, he had developed arthritis in his hips. So... We never knew him when he was able to play tennis or ski or run fast or do things that he was able to do up until the time he was about 40. Um, But he made it a practice not to take, uh, especially he, he, he needed a lot of dental work in his life for various reasons. And he never took Novocaine. That was the story he would usually tell us. And he, and he had very invasive medical procedures done on his mouth without Novocaine. It makes me cringe even to think about it. And he would just often tell us these things. And I really would wonder why. But then I realized how, certainly speaking for myself, you know, I fear physical pain. It's, it's an active fear of mine, physical pain. I fear the dentist. I could never have dental work without having my mouth numbed. I just couldn't even imagine it. And so he, was, he would just put that in front of us. Is like, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What can you do? Once, usually, we never watched movies. We would occasionally, Swami would, we would go to the movies for entertainment. And, uh, but we would never watch movies that were dark. But one time... We went to see a movie, and I don't remember what the name of it was, but it was, it might have been a World War II movie, but it involved torture and people suffering, and it was awful. And there was a group of us, and usually when a movie was displeasing, you would look over and Swami would, have, would be sitting back like this, and then you would hear him do a double breath, like that. 
And then soon after, he would lean over and say, are you enjoying this? And we would say no, and then we'd walk out. So I just waited and waited for him to take us out of this movie, and he never did. We had to watch the whole thing. And afterwards, he just said very casually, sometimes it's good to expose yourself to things like that, to see if you can just stay even-minded in the midst of it, which I failed absolutely, totally. I still have, I still, I mean, this was at least 30, 40 years ago, I still have images from that movie in my mind that still frighten me. You know, and I actually, I try to even just remember the movie without being frightened, what to speak of actually having an experience. But he said, sometimes it's good, you know, just to face into something and see if you can do it. So I think that's how we have to feel about what's going on in our world right now. Are we able to just keep our minds? I think Master wanted us. I mean, you know, here's the sentence. He wanted us to make an extra effort to live at our center within and not let ourselves be influenced by the emotions and excitement that swirl around us. I mean, that really sets it up, doesn't it? So that's the challenge. And then, who knows? World war, depression, who knows? I mean, I look at the way people are living now and I think, wow, when we can't live this way anymore, people are going to be so happy. It's, it's just, it just keeps escalating. I remember reading an, uh, an editorial somewhere and they commented about the trouble with, with speed and they weren't talking about methadrine, which was slang for speed. I don't know if it still is. For, um, but, but moving fast is after a while, whatever speed you're moving begins to feel normal. And in order to have the same excitement, you have to push it farther. And speed is just a symbol of, you know, however much stimulation you have, however much. Um, I went to a movie not too long ago, and uh, the previews, I don't know why I go in time for the previews. I never seem to learn. I have a movie, mo- a movie mudra, you know, which is this. And I realized that Every one of the previews was just this incredibly pounding. And, and several of the previews had the same technique. This, this urgent, pounding bass and drum that would suddenly stop. And then there would be something on the screen. And then it would start up again, this urgent, pounding, desperate sound. And then it would stop again. And I thought, God, it just wreaks havoc on your nervous system. And I paid money to sit there. You know, it wasn't the movie that I came to watch. But I paid money. And see, that's what's happening in our culture. And so the whole thing is just being whipped up. And this is where he felt in 1950 that Master wasn't saying, oh, just be nice and it won't happen. It's already gone too far. And it's already gone much further now. But you have to go back to my soul chooses to incarnate in the place that is going to be the most helpful to me spiritually. And we would, we would never have chosen to come here and God would never have sent us if it wasn't in our very best interest spiritually to be part of this experience. And you have to stand back every once in a while and just, you know, oh look, God carefully selected this perfect opportunity for me in which nothing is congenial you know, in which I don't belong. And so what am I supposed to be learning here? And how can I learn it? 
I remember once I was faced with some project that I had to do that I, I didn't want to do. I didn't want to have to deal with it. And Swami said to me, you don't get over karma by doing it badly. <laughs> Which is something I've remembered for a long time. You get over karma by facing it pleasantly, calmly and pleasantly. So it won't serve us if, in fact, disaster strikes in our lifetime. Um, Swamiji said, if you listen to the music around the world, he said, maybe it was in here he said it, or maybe it was... No, actually, it's in, it's in the book that I wrote, but it's his words. I was reading them in the, when I was recording the audio book. He said... Uh, you know, just the world, the mass consciousness of the planet, you know, just seems to want violent a violent explosion. He said, and usually when great waves of emotion like that sweep over society, people get what they want. And that's what you see. You know, you just keep seeing this inciting to violence in all directions and this. And you know, then he, Master... Uh, let's see, what, what was the point? Just give me a moment. I, I can't remember. Oh, but the inevitability of it. But even if it's not, even if it never gets worse than this, there's enough for us to practice right now. And then, of course, the other side of it, which is, Swami doesn't mention here, but it's mentioned often, that the only purpose of hard times is to bring people to a greater spiritual understanding individually and as society as a whole. So suffering, it, just all together, and this is, this is the, the most important point about this whole long, dreary dissertation I've been giving, is the only reason we suffer is because there is something that God is trying to teach us, and suffering is sent to us, or we suffer because we haven't yet learned it. But if we eagerly learn and eagerly embrace what God sends us, the suffering... I mean, there are circumstances that are simply difficult. Incarceration, uh, abuse, um, hunger, a cold. I mean, there's, there's circumstances that are very, very difficult. But the degree to which we suffer, we have much more control over that than many people realize. Because a lot of suffering... I. My friend, this is not so much suffering, but it's interesting. My friend Keshava, who's lived in Delhi for the last, most of the last 14 years or 12 or 14 years, and he's Canadian-American and he's not, that's not been his home country. I said, someone asked him, how, how do you be happy here? He said, I just never make comparisons. He said, people who, move, who change countries, who spend all their time comparing are always feeling like there's something wrong. But the people who grow up in that, that's just the way things are. He said, just India's not Canada. India's not America. The way things are is the way things are. And I just look at what is and just live that way. Well, tremendous amount of suffering is the sense that it ought to be different than it is. And so if one's circumstances are radically altered and one is has no context or inner resource in which to embrace that then one suffers a lot more and so if we practice make an extra effort to remain centered and not be influenced by the emotions and the excitement around us 
everything will be much easier. This, it, it, it never came to this, and it was only just a thought in my mind, but nonetheless it was a comforting one. Uh, in the 90s when we were facing a lot of litigation, and uh, there was a period of time where there was the real, well, at least the possibility at least, that we would be disenfranchised of everything. You know, everything that Ananda had built in a material sense would just end up being taken away from us one way or another. Um, I always had this picture in my mind of us being swept out of the community where we live. And it just sort of, it would kind of start at one edge and we'd just kind of be swept out. And, and, and that, so we would gradually be congregating out on Monroe Drive off the property that we live on. We don't even own it, we rent it, so it wasn't really under threat in that way, but we were just standing there. But in the picture in my mind, there was always a big crowd of us, and we were all sort of standing around, facing inward, you know, like having a conversation with each other. We were all wearing, like, you know, three dresses and an extra coat. I have all the pictures of the Jews in Europe, and so I always think of being wearing multiple layers, and then you're carrying... In, in, my, in my mind, we were not carrying rolling suitcases we were carrying leather valises you know it was a really an old picture but I had this picture of us all just kind of ending up there then somebody making a really good joke everybody laughing and then just walking up the road you know we meet in this beautiful building but it's not the building that we come for we come for the experience we have together now, of course, you know, things can be pushed farther and farther. But it, I find it helpful to just imagine what am I still afraid of and why am I afraid of it? And lots of things, but one can at least practice. So that my, my medical friends tell me that they often rehearse medical emergencies so that when they actually happen... Because if you're a nurse or a doctor, you're often in a situation where, you know, in that moment you have to figure out what to do. And if you rehearsed it in your mind, it's a lot easier. I don't think one should dwell on terrible circumstances, but every time one feels fear about it, instead of trying to distract your mind from the fear, I think it's more helpful to think, well, what if it does happen? What will it feel like and how will I cope? Anyway, so let me see what else. Okay, any comments or questions about any of that? So with the facing what we're afraid of, is there a way to face it beyond just the mental level to actually work with the feeling and the energy behind it? and get through it more quickly? Well, I don't think you can separate the feeling and the energy and the mental level. I mean, if there's not feeling and energy behind it, there's no fear. So the mere fact of, of being afraid means you're already working on that level. So it's all, it's all of a piece. And to a certain extent, yes, but you, but you can't. Um, I feel like one needs to work with these things kind of in a natural flow. It's not like you sit there and try to visualize everything that terrifies you. It's more like, for my mind, I think it's better if when the fears arise, in insofar as one is able, try to calmly regard it 
rather than um, run away from it by. But there's also a limit. You know, it, we don't have to go out and try to seek difficult things. They'll come to us exactly in proportion to our ability to handle them. And suffering is not more spiritual than not suffering. I mean, the old Catholic way of dealing with things was to seek suffering, you know, to flagellate yourself, to wear belts with nails on them wrapped around your waist, to starve yourself, you know, to do really, to to continually create painful circumstances, imitating Christ in some way or another. And Master says in the, Swami says in the Festival of Light, whereas in the past suffering and sorrow was the coin of man's redemption, for us now that payment has been exchanged for calm acceptance and joy. Master said St. Francis um, was devoted to Lady Poverty. He said, I am devoted to Lady Simplicity. So there's a very, it's a very specific instruction that we are not to push these issues for the sake of pushing them. That is not, that's not our spiritual path. So for me, it's more just, if it comes to me, I try to just ask myself, you know, what am I afraid of? And, you know, then, then an answer will usually come. And I try to follow it as far as I can until I become too frightened. I don't, you know, if I do... Sometimes I can dissipate it. Sometimes I just say, well, that's enough. (laughs) You know, if it happens to me, God will give me the strength, and then I go on. That's the best I can offer. Part to that, if, if, so you're asking, like, what am I afraid of? But isn't that keeping it on the level of thought? Because if reason follows feeling, how can you go into it more deeply on the level of feeling in order to transmute it instead of it I don't know for me if I if I did that and was going into the center of it and asking what am I afraid of and seeing it but then that feeling is still there so what do you do with it do you just offer it in your meditation in your so you you're freedom? making you're making thought and feeling as if they're like happening in two different rooms or something. I mean, Maybe I'm just not explaining it. Well. When I have a thought, the thought has a feeling with it. You know, if, if there's no feeling, it, there's no fear. So if, I'm afraid, if I even have to ask the question, what am I afraid of? Then, then obviously I'm right in the middle of a, of a feeling. Otherwise, there wouldn't be the word afraid. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any incentive to try it. So, I mean, one can... One can experience feeling non-verbally with no context, but I mean now I'm also just talking about myself. I find clarity of mind helps bring clarity of feeling. I ask myself, what is this feeling? That's really what I'm asking. What am I afraid of is the same as saying, what is this feeling? What am, I mean, okay, let's say it that way. What am I feeling? I feel fear. I'm very nervous about this, so I ask, what am I afraid of? But that's exactly like saying, what am I feeling? And why do I have this feeling? And what is it? Where does it come from? It's all about the feeling, because that's what's moving you. I mean, people try to divide and, and 
think if you're trying to think clearly that you're not feeling. But I don't think that's true. I think that they're, they're, they're companions and they serve you really well together. And sometimes people get kind of prejudiced against thought. That, that you know, they, they, they want feeling. But what they really are saying is, well, to me, it all comes down to the same thing. What we want is clarity. We just want clarity. And, and thought process often brings great clarity to the feeling. What am I feeling? What am I afraid of? If we can bring it to a clear focus, then, w- then suddenly we understand, instead of just being... I mean, recently... I mean, this is a, a way far away from this, but I, I was recently... Um, a, a book came to me that was about a woman who had suffered terrible sexual abuse when she was a child. And she was talking about how she overcame that, which is not anything that's in my world, but I meet people who deal with it a lot, so, unfortunately. So it was, it's, it's been helpful for me to understand just a little more. But the whole reality for her was, what am I feeling? Because she was having all these feelings all the time. And it was only when she was able to actually understand what she was feeling that she was able to begin to, to move out of it. If we, don't, if we don't unite clear thought with feeling, then the feelings just run us and we never know why. That's an extreme example where you know, a serious childhood trauma is completely re- repressed to such an extent that it's forgotten. And then all these feelings are running her life. She doesn't even know what they're connected to. And so she has to apply a tremendous amount of uh, clear-mindedness clear to the experience of feeling so that she can understand what she's feeling. But, but they, they work together. They don't work opposite from each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this is working, but that's very helpful. Good. Thank you, Asha. I think you uh, touched uh, one aspect of it. Uh, I was reminded of uh, one of the comments uh, I remember from Swami's uh, talk, one of uh, Swami's talk, where he says that he personally used uh, this um, approach, let's say, that the thing that he could be afraid of, he would uh, try to visualize whatever worst can happen. Right. Uh, before it and that would sort of prepare him for it and right. uh, he would come at ease with it already rather than f- uh, trying to be fearful of something and not thinking about it and still being fearful and all. Well, that's precisely what I was saying. I mean, when I, when, you know, the, you'd wake up in the night and think, well, maybe the end of all this litigation is Ananda's just going to lose everything. And so then I just walked us all out to the Monroe Drive. And, and I mean, I really said to myself, what does it mean to lose everything? It means to lose physical places in this circumstance. But you know, there was this, this huge fear, we're going to lose everything. Okay, so we lose everything. But we still have our friendship, we still have each other, we still have our creativity, we still have our devotion to God. So, you know, we start meeting in the park. You know, it could be lots of fun. It would be fun to just have it all the whole form just go to pieces and we just start over so that's precisely it 
And, and see, what that tells me is, what am I afraid of? What am I feeling? You know, I'm afraid of the comfort of this house and my comforter and my pillow and being able to be warm in this room, you know, and I might be cold and I might not have it. You know, just what am I really, really afraid of? What am I really feeling? You know, that, which is to, to answer Bhavani, that's what am I really feeling? It just, and then, oftentimes, depending how powerful your will is, you can just transcend it through thought by really seeing the delusion of it. Sometimes you can't, and you just have to wait. It's the, like in the Gita, the, um, the smoke obscuring the fire, the rust on the mirror, the baby in the womb. The smoke obscuring, obscuring the fire, you just go like that and it blows away. The rust on the mirror you have to scrub off. The baby in the womb, you just have to wait. <laughs> and so if I can tell that, you know, this is just too big for me to deal with, I then, okay, this is a, a fear feeling, since we're talking about fear. It's just, there's nothing I can do about this. I just have to pray that if God tests me in this way, he'll give me the strength, because I can't find it now. Precise. It's very precise. And if you start running it through your, your life, you'll really see, you know, what if, I mean, there's really awful ideas. What if something happens to my child? What if I never get to have a child? What if my... Uh, house burns down? What if my mother never uh, loves me? You know, what if I never reconcile with my mother? You know, you just ask all these questions. What if I get cancer and die? What if I have a very painful disease? You know, what if? Um, am I still afraid of it? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's good. And th- but once you do that, you just say, what it, what it does, it doesn't make you nervous. It just makes you humble. And it gives you an idea of the fact that, you know, it's, the spiritual path is not, is, it's not as easy as I thought. And that I have to just love God and trust and just let it flow. And, and it just makes you much nicer as a person. Because <laughs> you realize, you know, you and me both, both, we're just all, here we are all together, just swimming in the soup of Maya, just trying to find our way. But we have very, 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 very good karma. And whatever's in front of us is much less than is behind us. You know, it's like we're a lot farther away, you know. (laughs) We're close to the end of the book. Why don't we take a little short break and then we'll talk for a few more minutes. During the break, Bhavani was uh, clarifying a little bit about what she was asking me about thought and feeling and technique and was just talking about the obvious technique of um, when you feel something in your heart that you can raise it from the heart chakra up, you know, through the throat to the spiritual eye and offer it to in, into the spiritual eye or you can simply offer from your heart to masters. You can surrender a great deal of what you feel or pray for guidance and um, I mean, obviously, those are very good things to do. A, f- a friend of mine yesterday just said something to me that it, it was a very interesting uh, comment that I must have read myself years ago, but I hadn't remembered. I have a lot of Gemini in my horoscope, and when Swami, in his book about astrology, he speaks, he said a lot of the way Gemini intuition, Gemini intuition often comes as a 
as a clear, calm, mental understanding. And I just thought, yeah, that's exactly right. So when I'm, because of who I am, when I'm talking about getting something clear like that, it's not not intuitive and it's not disconnected from feeling. It's just, that's just the way, given my orientation, which is pretty self-evident, I'm extremely uh, oriented toward ideas, that when I can get the idea right, then everything else just kind of clicks into place. But it's not separated from feeling, it's just the way feeling operates in my system, my, in, my intuit, intuitive system. I've always, because I've often actually even said, well, you know, I just don't have, I don't have those kinds of intuit, intuitive flashes. But I, I constantly have clear, calm, mental understandings that, that just pop in, that are not the result, that are not intellectual. But they're, they're just clear, calm thought. And that's a form of intuition. And you can't have clear, calm thought unless you have clear, calm feeling. So it's just a way of working with all of it. And it, every, every tool is useful and people pick up the pencil that fits their hand. Okay. Any other comments or thoughts or questions before we go on? All right. Let's see if we can read one more. Number 319. Master spoke often in the context of coming economic disaster of people's need to gather together in what he called World Brotherhood colonies. Virtually every time he lectured in public during his last years, he harped on this theme. Elsewhere, I have written much on the subject of World Brotherhood colonies. It isn't necessary for me here, therefore, to elaborate on that theme. All that I've written on the subject has been based on his ideas. Here, I want only to say that he urged everyone to take the concept very seriously. One Sunday, he said, I was thinking so much last night about World Brotherhood colonies that my mind didn't want to meditate. Then I chanted a little bit and my mind came back to me. From those few words alone, surely one can see how deep were his feelings on this subject. You know, I think this one is very much related to the paragraph above where he said, I've reflected sometimes that his teachings were, in a sense, intended more as a guideline for future times, after the world has recovered from the disasters he saw in the more immediate future. So Amit's made the interesting comment on more than one occasion that history will show that one of the most important things happening right now is Ananda that our community ideals and our way of living is um, because when Master's teachings, when they really become, when people look and realize that this is the way of living, when we start recovering from what's going to happen, if there are nuclear wars, if the population on the planet is vastly reduced, if urban living just becomes impossible, The picture that Swami has described in other places that Master described is small, self-sufficient little communities. I also had this interesting realization, which should have come to me a long time ago, but let me just think where the context was. It was just an appreciation of the depth of friendship that a spiritual family has with itself. Did I talk about this last week? About how... When we're 
when we're all working together to attune ourselves to, to the same uplifted ideals, that the bond that develops between us is so much deeper than a bond that's just based on um, egoic af- affinity or circumstances. Uh, because the, the connection is... Uh, it, it transcends the superficial. And that feeling of, of support and, and uh, comfort and I'm really, and, the, and not being alone on the planet. That's really what Master's talking about. Yes, we, we need these places where we live together, but it's almost like that happens, you, that's what you want to do. You want to see each other often and be close to each other. And then there's this other practical matter of having safe environments and being able to be self-sustaining um, that is very important also for proper survival if times get really hard. But the real power of it is those connections. And that's why when I traced out that picture of losing everything to the litigation and just being homeless and standing on the street, it, there, there was in my picture of it, there's this sudden realization that nothing, nothing, nothing important has actually been lost. Because as long as we're all there together, we'll figure it out. And I, I sometimes think if, if in fact the world just crashes in all the possible ways it could crash, and uh, we don't have all the options that we have now, that we're just going to have so much fun together when we have more time and we don't have to work, work you know, we don't have to always be leaving home and doing uncongenial things and... We're just planting and harvesting radishes and taking turns on the bicycle generator, you know. <laughs> it's just like, it's, and, and, we'll, we'll, I think we'll just be very happy. And we'll, we'll just wonder what we were thinking before. It, it's impossible to stop now because it's just, I mean, we're in a very demanding, high energy, expensive area. We can't just stop. And this is where we're supposed to be, but it's it's very interesting. Yes. Every year, just to clarify, because so many people see this online, every year in our Palo Alto community, we we have a party. Just you know, it's it's for the members of the congregation. Who is it's a, I mean, anybody can become a member of the congregation, but it's for the people. We just we just make the room beautiful, and we do lots of things that are fun. We we do we do lots of um, things that are just enjoyable. And it really, it does, it just really raises the awareness. When uh, in the life of Henry I, who was Swami Kriyananda in a previous incarnation, the, the son and heir to William the Conqueror, who was master, it is said that Henry did the business of the kingdom in the morning and then the afternoons were devoted to art and to music and to in, not not enjoyment in a negative sense, but to light-hearted and creative things. Serious work in the morning and then friendship in the afternoon. And in Ananda, uh, when we were growing up with him, he, uh, he often, very often, just we just did things to enjoy each, enjoy each other's company. It was a high priority to just enjoy each other's company. 
And, and recently, in fact, uh, something came up where uh, it, it, it just there was a choice between two different projects, but one of them was going to be really fun for the, uh, the people involved, and the other was just going to be ordinary. And it was just obvious to me, well, you have to go do the one that's fun. Because the ordinary one, yes, it's a duty, but if you miss out on these, you know, the things that come every once in a while that are just really wonderful. Once in, when I was with Swami, something, I had a responsibility to go off and give a class. And it was an, or, it was an ordinary class. It wasn't like a special event. It was just an ongoing. But there was something really unusual and fun happening over here. And I was trying to be dutiful. But Swami's answer to me was very important. He said, personal things also matter. And it was just like, merely because I wanted to do it didn't mean that I shouldn't. Because it was, it was sweet. It was family building. It was special. And this class would come and go. Like, a month later, that class would have faded away. But decades later, the other event would still be in my heart. So personal things also matter. And our family is part of that. And the strength that we get from our friendships is worth investing in. It's not peripheral. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something to remember in our own minds. Otherwise, we get harsh. We get harsh with each other. We lose the sweetness. Swami says, um, a lack of sweetness between people can often lead to a lack of sweetness with God which is a, also a very interesting point. You know, it's, it's, there's, no, there's no line where human stops here and divine starts, divine stops and human starts. It's all just one flow of energy. And, and as, as above, so below. And we just need to be in that flow at all times. All right. Any other comments or thoughts? Let's just read one more then. 320. James Collar was walking on the beach in Encinitas, the Master told us. James Collar was a, uh, one of Master's direct disciples. He was a monk for a while, but Master sent him to live elsewhere because he had commotion karma, among other things. Swami, his picture appears in the path, and Swami talks about it. I'll, I'll tell you more about him in a moment. James Collar was walking on the beach in Encinitas, the Master told us. When I saw a light around him, Divine Mother was showing me that James is a saint. She told me, in fact, that he will be liberated in this lifetime. I don't know how, he continued with a laugh, but Divine Mother says so, therefore it must be so. James was the disciple who, while driving back to Los Angeles from Phoenix, had eaten a hamburger, or was it two, a peccadillo for which the master had gently reproached him. James wasn't particularly good at following rules. He is most peculiar, the master once said of him. He phones me at any time of the day or night. He has strong devotion, however. That is what it takes. That, that is what takes one to God. He is like a mouthful of hot molasses, too hot to swallow but too sticky to spit out. <laughs> Despite everything, he will be freed in this life. What would James' freedom signify? This isn't a question for true devotees to ask. 
James' freedom, unless Master chose to volunteer the information, was between himself and God. James Collar is a very important example in the spiritual life, and those of you who you know, have, haven't memorized every paragraph of the path might not really know him as well as some of us do. I mean, I never met him. But he, uh, he had commotion karma. Whatever he did, something would always happen. In the path, I think Swami tells the story of how there were, at Lake Shrine, there were ducks that would come and eat the fish, or birds, the birds that would come and eat the fish, and Master had a BB gun, and sometimes he would fire the BB gun sort of over the heads of the, the birds to scare them away because he wanted to keep the fish in the pond. So uh, James picked up the gun, fired at random, killed two of the birds, was seen by a neighbor who called the police. <laughs> you know, and just, that was sort of like whenever he got involved in something, that was the phrase Swami used, he had commotion karma. And he eventually had to live elsewhere than Mount Washington because he just, he, he didn't follow the rules, he just couldn't integrate into a group living. But the end of it is that Master said he's a saint, he has, a, he has light around him, Divine Mother says he'll be freed. And even just Master said, he's so peculiar, he calls me any time of the day or night. He didn't have any sense of what was appropriate, what wasn't appropriate. He just moved in a completely, he's, he's a very peculiar man, is how Master put it. But what is important in the little tiny picture of human life is not necessarily important in the divine way. And, and we also, during the break, we were, I was talking to someone about this too. It's like we measure ourselves by the most un, unimaginative criteria. We, we, we accept the ideas of the world. I make money, I get recognition, I accomplish things, you know, things work out for me, my children come out well, my house is nice. It's like, who cares? At, at, the, at the end of it all, when we die, you're just gone. And you know, you, you read all the time because everybody passes news around everywhere. You know, so-and-so gets cancer and dies at 25 or an accident happens here or you live to a ripe old age. But when you're gone, it's just over. And all of that stuff what stays with us is who we have become through the effort we've made while we are living. And there's, there's no possible way that the actual tangible expression of our success goes with us. It doesn't. And so we think it matters how the details come out, but it doesn't. The only thing that matters is what kind of consciousness we've held through it. And, and we all often talk about James Collar. I mean, over the years, he was part of the Ananda culture. Because Master, did he say it right here? In another place, Swami quotes Master as saying, I don't know how, but Divine Mother said he would. So he said, how does he put it? Can you, yes, I don't know how. That's exactly what he says. Master said, I don't know how he's, how he's going to become freed. But Divine Mother says so, therefore it must be so. But whenever we would feel confused or inadequate, 
it was very comforting to think of James Collar. <laughs> and I don't mean that lightly. I mean, I mean it humorously, but I mean it really seriously. Sometimes when I get really involved that my judgment of myself is actually God's judgment of me, uh, I remember him, who, who never really amounted to much or did anything that anybody noticed. But he was very pure, apparently, inside and really loved God. And when we're out of this body, Swami, Swami put that down in terms of, it was in terms of nuclear, a nuclear bomb. When the people were campaigning against nuclear, the nuclear initiative, this was decades ago and it was on the ballot, something like that. And this man made this presentation about the horrors of nuclear war which God knows are not attractive. How many people will die and so on. But Swami's first response was, he said, "When when, when you're in the astral world, he said, it doesn't make any difference how you got there. And he said, and whether the people on the planet now all dribble out over the next hundred years or die all together, he said, it just doesn't make any difference. Once you step out of your body and are off this planet, everything that was of such importance on the planet just isn't any more important. We're all going to die. So, I mean, it's a very, it's a funny way to think of it. Nobody, as Swami said, nobody a hundred years from now, nobody who's here now will still be here, almost nobody. So one at a time over 50 years or all at once. I mean, these are important things to remember. And so if it doesn't go well for us, just, stick to God and be a mouthful of of hot molasses. (laughs) He's just not going to get rid of us that easily. Well, all right. God bless you. We'll take a brief break and then we'll be back again. I'm going to Italy and then to Israel. So it's only not quite three weeks. 